President, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen. As chairman of LSE, it's a particular pleasure for me to welcome the president of my country to this school. A school which, of course, has long traditions and roots and connections with Ireland. But it's a particular pleasure to have him with us here this evening on his first trip abroad. Um, tonight's event, as you're aware, is part of LSE's European Institute and APCO Worldwide Perspectives on Europe Lecture Series. And we're very grateful to our supporters for APCO in particular for the support of this lecture series. On the 11th of November, <coughs> Michael D. Higgins was inaugurated as the ninth President of Ireland. Over the years, he has provided a constant and passionate political voice. He's a poet and writer, an academic and a statesman, a human rights advocate, something that has continued in his family tradition, I understand, with his daughter, promoter of inclusive citizenship, and he's also a champion of creativity in, within Irish society. That's another connection between uh, the president and the Shavian roots of LSE itself. <clears throat> he has previously served in almost every level of public life in Ireland, including as Ireland's first minister of, for arts, culture, and the Gaeltacht. We very much <coughs> look forward to the President's speech here this evening. And let me say, and this doesn't come easily to me because I don't really know what I'm saying, for those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag, I really like saying that, the hashtag for today's event is Hatch LSE Ireland. I really feel that I've moved into a new era by saying that. <coughs> As usual, after the lecture, there will be a chance for you to put questions or comments to the President. But now, will you please join me in welcoming uh, President Michael D. Higgins to LSE, who will deliver his lecture on public intellectuals, universities, and a democratic crisis, all of which he is eminently qualified to comment upon. President. This Chairman, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, uh, it is an honour to be here at the London School of Economics and Political Science. I feel at home uh, in an institution, indeed in a city, with so many Irish connections. I feel at home in a country which is Ireland's nearest neighbour and increasingly our close friend. And I feel at home as an academic speaking to representatives of different cultures and to a younger generation who are challenged in so many ways by the current changes taking place in international economics, in politics, and indeed in the public world. It's just, it is just about nine months since Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II's state visit to Ireland, the first visit by a British monarch to an independent Ireland. Her Majesty's visit, her perfectly judged words, her gesture of respect for those who died in an Irish cause, 
her use of the Irish language, her evident pleasure at being our honoured guest, symbolise the remarkable transformation in relations between our countries over recent years, and it was deeply welcomed all over the island of Ireland. When I return that state visit, whenever it is to happen, I'll be doing so remembering as well, of course, that my father was in the War of Independence, as was my, my uncle's, and it will tell you how things have changed. Many factors contributed to making the royal visit possible, and such a success, and in that regard, before I begin, I would like to pay particular tribute to my pre immediate predecessor as president, Mary McAleese, who throughout her term of office did so much to foster reconciliation and friendship across these islands. <clears throat> when the LSC was founded in 1895 by the four leading Fabians, Beatrice and Sidney Webb, George Bernard Shaw and Graham Wallace, its founders were convinced of the power of education in not only lifting their fellow citizens out of poverty, but also of such citizens understanding, participating, and in time offering an alternative form of society, one that would be egalitarian, democratic, tolerant, one which would extend and deepen democracy in every aspect of life. I think, for example, of another essay published in 1891 by Oscar Wilde, The Soul of Man Under Socialism. It would also, they felt, such an achievement, they felt, would constitute the establishment of socialism as an alternative to capitalism. It would also, as a mediating influence in radical change, thus serve as an alternative to the violence of the class conflict which was widely advocated in a number of countries at that time, and which seemed a real prospect. The century that was ending was one of immense change. The response to such change, as intellectual historians such as H. Stuart Hughes have shown, gave us the great founding texts of Marx, Weber, Durkheim, Croce, and others. But it was not only philosophers and political theorists who responded to the new order that was emerging. George Bernard Shaw and other writers recognized the changes that were underway read the philosophical and political books and pamphlets, and responded themselves with essays, lectures, and literary works. The writer as public intellectual, as analyst and campaigner for change, was a role that George Bernard Shaw and others assumed with vigor and dedication. And Shaw's involvement with the London School of Economics was thus part of that public engagement, as was his sustained interest in the social change he saw as necessary in Ireland, and the place of literature in assisting the consciousness that would demand and deliver that change. Nelson O'Kealic Richel, in her, his recent excellent study, Shaw, Singh, Connolly, and Socialist Provocation, shows how Shaw believed, like fellow Fabians, that the conversion of the middle classes was essential for the democratic choice they sought. Interestingly, he was not joined in that opinion by fellow playwright and Irishman John Millington Singh. John Millington Singh held an alternative, more radical view, based on what he saw was the real suffering of the downtrodden and the need to respond to it, and he rejected as idealism the Shaw project of middle-class conversion. <clears throat> 
And indeed it was Singh's work that brought Padraig Pierce closer to James Connolly, as O'Callag Ritchell shows. That work establishes, however, that both writers were participants in the project of change. O'Callag Ritchell shows very valuably how Shaw, through the agency of Frederick Ryan, an Irish journalist who had attended Shaw's Fabian lectures in London, went on to lecture himself in Dublin to the Irish Socialist Republican Party, founded by James Connolly, and those lectures on democracy and drama drew not only on, on Shaw's lectures, but also on Shaw's further work on Ibsen. William O'Brien attended these lectures, and indeed, they in turn influenced Connolly himself. This connection between London and Dublin, this flow of ideas for social reform, or for the radical resolution of Ireland's relationship with Britain, knew no borders then. The Irish literary presence in London, be it Shaw or Wilde, mixed the projects of achieving literary success and a wider audience with the necessary irony of unresolved relationships of Irishness. This would have a lasting effect, not only on the artistic form, but on the consciousness of audiences. Last night, watching a production of Al Pacino's Salome, I was reminded of course, that 1895, the year of the founding of the London School of Economics, is the year in which Oscar Wilde is arrested in London, which makes its own comment, which deserves another lecture, on how one was to construe the orientation of the middle classes. In so many ways, the tragedy of modern Ireland's recent difficulties, perhaps, is that it did what the founders of the LSE hoped. It was the first English-speaking country to decolonize, to walk in darkness down what would become a better lit road. The problem for Ireland, however, was the failure to achieve economic liftoff at the same moment or as soon after it achieved independence. And indeed, by the time the more recent economic boom began, leaders and people had all but lost connection with the cultural and political elements of national revival which might, if retained, have provided an ethical break, made a critique that would have constituted the regulation that was needed in recent decades. The London School of Economics then, at its foundation, even though it was aimed at the moderation social democracy offered as an alternative to class conflict, had an emancipatory purpose. And its early discussions through Shaw had a direct effect on Irish realities and on Anglo-Irish relations. It is perhaps insignificantly recognized in Ireland and Britain the practical orientation of the themes chosen by George Bernard Shaw in his lectures. He lectured on the working conditions of the laboring classes and their consequences, but also on Ibsen and the morally informed social vision in Ibsen's plays. Peter Graham's Shaw Shadows, rereading the texts of Bernard Shaw, Shaw is explicit as to his view on the importance of there being a mediating option to the violence he saw as inevitably flowing from the institutionalization of inequality and the denial of rights, even then the voting rights for women. And there is a lesson perhaps in these remarks for some of our present times. I quote from Shaw. If socialism be not made respectable and formidable by the support of our class, 
if it be left entirely to the poor, then the proprietors will attempt to suppress it by such measures as they have already taken in Austria and Ireland. Dynamite will follow. Terror will follow dynamite. Cruelty will follow terror. If, on the other hand, the middle class will educate themselves to understand this question, they will be able to fortify whatever is just in socialism and to crush whatever is dangerous in it. The decades of the 20th century at the LSE, of course, will be for many others around the world the periods when they encountered such teachers as Harold Lasky. Indeed, as a young student myself at University College Galway, I recall Dr. Laura Sunulon, an Irish speaker from Manchester, but who had come back to Ireland. And he gave pioneering lectures, I remember, and he spoke of the LSC and Lasky's influence on those who had come to study, students who aspired to lead their countries in what were to be or had been promised to be as decades of decolonization and national independence. Through Lasky, and writings such as his Grammar of Politics, the London School of Economics acquired a global reputation, not only for theory and research, but for analysis of the role of the state and state-making, state-building. I also associate such great achievements as the British Welfare State, the National Health Service, pioneering work on equality and the need for solidarity, the responsibilities of interdependency, the support for the League of Nations as a valuable legacy. I see that as part of the legacy, the emancipatory moment of the London School of Economics. And I remain still in awe of the moral content of the scholarship and the life of such intellectual giants as Professor Richard Titmus. Professor Titmus founded the subject of social policy, the first occupant of the chair of social administration at the London School of Economics in 1942. His work was drawn by us all, or any of us who lectured later in social policy, poverty studies or equality. Now, his was an engaged view of research and scholarship, and he did not avoid the challenge or the controversy of engaging with competing models of government policy, be it on public health or pensions or social justice. <clears throat> now, as a young university teacher myself, appointed at the end of the 60s, I had hopes of the emancipatory power of a humanistic social science. I could not have foreseen the influence of the second coming of the ideas of theorists such as Friedrich von Hayek, or the influence they would have, not only on theory, but on policy. Policies that would be privileged in the United Kingdom and the United States in the 80s and 90s of the last century. Not as policies chosen among options, but as a single hegemonic version of the connection between markets, economic policy, and life itself. I would this evening then like to offer a brief reflection on public intellectuals, university, and the role of both in what I perceive to be an emerging democratic crisis, one that sets representative parliamentary accountability in conflict with unaccountable economic forces. It is a time when the credibility of parliamentary power has been called into question. 
when alternatives to the state and civil society are being advanced, and when at institutional level in Ireland, the United Kingdom, Europe and beyond, the legitimation crisis of which Jürgen Habermas wrote so many decades ago has, begun to, has not only emerged, but has deepened. Having squandered credibility through light regulation, and thus rendered themselves powerless regulatory authorities, the state itself has been made vulnerable. There are, of course, at any time, hegemonic myths that inform, even determine, the discourse of the times. The myth of rational markets with infinite growth was the hegemonic myth of recent decades. Apart from such distinguished exceptions as the Galbraiths, father and son, it is a largely uncontested myth in the modern period. After the fall of the Berlin Wall and after the fall of state socialism, itself a distortion of the utopian impulse, indeed a dystopia, an extraordinary hubris emerged by way of response, which led to the articulation of what was little less than a utopian vision of the right. Politics would now take place to unregulated markets, and it had a philosophical source in the renewed interest, as I have said, in the writings of Friedrich von Hayek and Karl Popper, among others. We have, as a consequence, been living through a period of extreme individualism, a period where the concept of society itself has been questioned. The public space in so many countries of the European Union has been commodified, and it is as calculating rational choice maximizers rather than as fellow citizens we have been invited to view ourselves and our neighbours. That is the mark of our times, the hegemonic vision by which it is suggested we live our lives together. Our existence is assumed to be, is defined as competing individual actors. Indeed, at times neurotic in our insatiable anxieties for consumption, as Sigmund Bormann puts it in his book Consuming Life. As Bormann puts it, consumers become the promoters of the commodities they consume. They become a commodified entity in the presentation of themselves. Behind these transitions, of course, and this is one of the reasons I'm glad to be here, lies an intellectual rationalization, standing in support of unregulated markets, of unaccountable capital flows, of virtual financial products, are scholars who frequently claim the legitimation provided by a university. The university, indeed, is at times put under pressure to demonstrate its utility as the seat of the single hegemonic model of society and economy that prevails. I believe universities are challenged now not only to recover the moral purpose of original thought, emancipatory scholarship, but also in their ethos and practice to recover the caring and concerned teaching such as that offered by Harold Lasky at the LSE to students from abroad, such as Krishna Menon. That university teaching was more than instruction. It was encouragement to abjure, to overcome the strangeness of exile and the loneliness of solitary study, 
that came with the move, often with, from one culture to another. And the ethos of the LSE was also defined in its early days by other public intellectuals such as Bertrand Russell, who taught German social, German social democracy at the school in the years 1895 to 1896. After the publication of his tragically <coughs> neglected book in 1934, he taught classes on the science of power in 1936. The 1934 book had outlined in detail how collective behaviour could be manipulated. If a crowd is gathered, particularly if music is playing, you can get them to believe in anything Russell had written in 1934. There is then a powerful legacy of teaching and research at the LSE. And it had its beneficiaries far beyond the lecture halls of the LSE, for at the same time in the city, the Irish and Britain, who were building and shaping post-war Britain in many ways, were also benefiting from the security of the welfare state and the National Health Service, which had the intellectual support of many scholars at the LSE, as they, the Irish, delivered their labour and their ideas. Now, in the second decade of a new century, it is not for the LSE alone that the challenge to recover or reinforce the university ethos of emancipatory scholarship exists. All of the universities in both our countries, indeed universities all over Europe and beyond, are challenged in this regard, I believe. Much ground has been lost in terms of the public space, the public world, the idea of the shared essential space of an independent people, free to participate and change their circumstance, to imagine their future, be it in Ireland, Europe, or at global level. Intellectuals are challenged, I believe now, to a moral choice, to drift into be part of a consensus that accepts a failed paradigm of life and economy, or to offer or seek to recover the possibility of alternative futures. And where universities not special places, the citizens of the future may ask for the generation of alternatives in science, culture and philosophy. The questions that are posed to universities now are questions indeed that go far beyond ones of a narrow utility. Are the universities to be allowed and will they seek the space, the capacity, the community of scholarship, the quiet moments of reflection necessary to challenge such paradigms of the connection between economy and society, ethics and morality, democratic discourse and authoritarian imposition as have failed, or alternatively, drawing on their rich university tradition at its best, moments of disputation and discourse. Will they seek to offer alternatives that offer a stable present and a democratic, liberating and sustainable future? We are experiencing now, I believe, an intellectual crisis that is far more serious than an economic one, which fills the papers, dominates the programmes in our media. Such a crisis, of course, has arisen before, has been perceived as arising before, and has drawn a response from intellectuals as they were forced to react to the collapse of the prevailing assumptions and they engaged with the need for a new paradigm of life and politics. I mentioned the moment in the 19th century when intellectuals that I have quoted responded to the urgency of the situation. 
When Max Weber, the great 19th century social theorist, responded to the events of his time in the second half of the 19th century, it was not to the end of empire in itself by any means, but it was a time of change in the forms of empire, creating transitions, the response to which would be dominated by the technocratic thinking of the time. Weber proposed a commitment to rationality as the key building block of the future. He was anxious to save as much as possible of the rationalist heritage of a previous century, but at the same time introduced something new, but beyond logic, intuition, and religious sentiment. He thus critiqued the excesses of both positivism and idealism. Yet even then, Weber saw the dangers of the potential of abuse of that which would be claimed to be rational. He spoke of the threat of a spring that would not beckon with its promise of a new life, but would deliver instead the threat of a winter of icy cold. He prophesied an iron cage of bureaucracy within which conformity would be demanded to that which no longer recognized its original or reasonable purpose. A time that would come when what was irrational would wear the mask of rationality. He was writing at a time when technocratic rationality had succeeded reason as the central concept in political writing. <coughs> a century earlier, reason had been central in, for example, Adam Smith's The Theory of Moral Sentiments. Weber, of course, could not have envisaged the consequences of the journey intellectual thought would make from reason to rationality, and then to calculable rationality, and finally our own time, to the speculative gambling that is at the heart of so much global misery, with its view of those humans who share our fragile planet, not as citizens, but as rational choice maximizing consumers. We are, I believe, in such a winter as Weber foretold. We have arrived at quite widespread acceptance by policymakers of a proposition rejected by the majority of serious economic historians, i.e. that markets are rational. This on occasion leads in the extreme to the suggestion, absurd and all as it may sound, that it is people who are irrational, the markets rational. That public for whom Friedrich von Hayek wrote that economics are too complex it is suggested requires something other than the direction of elected governments. They must be forced into a compliance with technocratic demands, for which there is frequently scant serious scholarly support, and needless to say, no popular mandate. This represents, I believe, a challenge to democracy itself, I suggest, and to the scholarship that supports it. The mediating institutions are losing authority and the prospect of raw conflict increases all over the world, as language, words without emancipatory force, give ground to what is unaccountable but global. Neither is the intellectual crisis of our times simply a problem for the LSE or any other university. When one of Europe's foremost public intellectuals, Jürgen Habermas, writes of the fragility of the European Union project, I feel he is referring to the contest in Europe, what is that is there now for the public world. Social Europe 
was born we must never forget as a concept in response response to the legacy of war and social misery and it was connected to a democratic discourse as social Europe as a project is undermined by the commodification of ever more aspects of social life as European social capital the strongest in the world is monetized it is clear we have arrived at such a crisis now as greater greater than that faced by the previous generation of political and social theorists at the end of the 19th century. It is a challenge for all of us to craft our response to our crisis as those intellectuals did in their time. I believe that a university response that is critically open to originality in theory and research, committed to humanistic values in teaching, has a great opportunity to make a European, even global, contribution of substance that such a university can be the hub of original critical thought and a promoter of its application through new models of connection between science and technology, administration and society. I believe Irish and British universities have a great opportunity to break such new ground. And the LSE has the advantage of a very fine heritage known worldwide. Independent thought from home and abroad and scholarly engagement with our current circumstances are crucial. A paradigm drawn from the fiction of rational markets, I humbly suggest, needs not only to be let go, it needs to be replaced by a scholarship that is genuinely emancipatory, centred on originality rather than imitation. One that restores the unity, for example, between the sciences and culture in their common curiosity, discovery and celebration of the life of the mind enables new visions to emerge. Following Ernst Bloch, I believe, of course, that utopian alternatives must be accompanied by a praxis that is envisaged. And I suggest that it must be one that is applicable within and in the context of institutions. I do not, nor am I, claiming a space for abstract grand theory at the cost of middle-range theories or policies that have immediate or short-term application or benefit. The concept of utopia is being recovered, of course, in recent intellectual work, such as that of Ruth Levitas and others. And the insistence of Ernst Bloch that utopianism not only involves a rejection of what is and a hope for an alternative, but also a strategy for implementation of the alternative is central to such new writing as that in the the Centre for Utopian Studies at the University of Limerick. Coming to the end, in recent times, we've paid a heavy price for unfettered speculative accumulation, for light regulation, for the global consequences of what followed acceptance of amendments to the Glass-Steagall Act in the United States an act that had its origins in responding to the crash of 1929 that sought to ensure it would never happen again. The amendments released a flood of virtual financial products across the world. To that, many countries, including our own, added their own speculative bubble. You know, as well as that, there were not only intellectuals responding to to economic circumstances in the 19th century. The work of John Maynard Keynes represented the response of a public intellectual in his day, many decades later. 
in response to two world wars that followed the reconstruction of 19th century Europe, Keynesian strategies emerged to address unemployment and poverty, demanded that the importance of health and education be recognised. There was an intellectual debate, one that offered and contested different democratic options. The mid-20th century constituted an atmosphere where social capital emerged and social democracy mediated conflict. The 20th century saw, too, a public debate about the role of the state, the rights of the individual and social policy, of the balance between these areas. In succeeding decades, political philosophy and social theory gave way to issues of administration. Analysis of the role of the state faded. This gave way to applied studies and an administrative sense of the state's actions. A discourse based on solidarity, interdependency, shared vulnerability, community, gave way to a discourse on lifestyle and individual consumption. A society of citizens gave way to a disaggregated mass of individual consumers. I see in this Weber's nightmare of a rationality that in time would counter the original purposes of institutions that would morph into an irrational form incapable of adjustment to change internally or externally, difficult to reject as an account of the modern period. The Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor suggests that we have been drifting to unfreedom. But internationally too, of course, the context for universities has been changing. As parliaments, as I have described, have been weakened at home, an ever more volatile global financial world has emerged, one that is unaccountable, at best amoral, in its demands and consequences. The new technology meant that speculative capital could move in real time. At international level, while for a brief moment many decades ago, in a previous century, such as at the birth of the United Nations, it seems that international monetary and economic matters might be governed in an accountable way. Such a moment disappeared, never to return. Yet the need for such regulation remains, is urgent, and requires rearticulation. For those of us then who have had the privilege of being university teachers, for those who remain, the university is, I suggest, a space from which new futures have always emerged and must do so again. The ethos of independent scholarship is what delivers a previous scholarship's achievements into the present and challenges that scholarship for renewal and replacement and development. I admire the single dedication of researchers, the sacrifice they make, but I also value the importance of the teams that are necessary for cooperative achievements in the sciences and the time that fundamental research takes. At the same time, I believe, that the division of culture and the sciences is an unnecessary price that has been paid for the hegemony at a particular moment in the history of European scholarship, a moment of hubris that divided culture and science. It is time to recover the unities of scholarship, to strike out for originality, and that, I suggest, might be our most valuable European contribution, one that will be valued by future generations. As subjects are recast, unities can be restored and we should consider Edward Said's suggestion that it is in the interstices between subjects that the most exciting intellectual work happens. There is not, for example, 
any better future for a redeemed economics as a subject and discipline than as political economy within a system of culture? Would it not be an exciting initiative, perhaps, I suggest with humility, for the LSE and an Irish university to establish an endowed chair to explore the ways in which an ethical cultural idea of Europe and of the national could be invoked to check the drift to unfreedom? I suggest then that the universities and those who labour within them are crucial in the struggle for the recovery of the public world for the emergence of truly emancipatory paradigms of policy and research. It is not merely a case of connecting the currency, the economy and the people. It is about recovering the right to pose important questions, such as Immanuel Kant did in his time. What might we know? What might we do? What may we hope? It is time to recover consideration of the public world we share, the fragile planet for which we must have responsibility, and lodge within it such concepts as intergenerational justice and participatory forms of the state, civil society, communities, and citizens acting in concert. These issues and challenges we in Ireland, the United Kingdom, and Europe share together. And happily, there has never been a better time for us sharing our scholarship our students and our concerns as we moved together to a new version of our independent lives. We need to consider the revitalization of the relationships between the institutional structure of our states and our citizens, so as to forge a connection, for example, between the citizens of Europe and our shared European institutions. And as to the discourse itself, we need to draw on the debate on alternatives within civil society as opportunities to extend or deepen democracy rather than as alternatives to the state. There is a moral basis to those who are protesting, to those who would like a communitarian new beginning, but I believe that to walk away from the discourse of the state would be a tragic error on the part of those who seek an emancipatory transformation in our society. Obviously, of course, to rely entirely on advocacy directed at the state and to neglect the possibilities and promise of alternatives within civil society would equally be a disastrous choice. In combining the task of conscientization with a commitment to original thought and compassionate and emancipatory scholarship and teaching, public intellectuals can help bridge the space to that utopia and its practice that we all as vulnerable inhabitants of our shared fragile planet need. George Bernard Shaw, Chairman, would have encouraged us to save and reconstruct social democracy and to bring its refreshed promise to all the citizens of our shared Europe, to a Europe committed to an ever-deepening democracy. I wish the London School of Economics and Politics the great future it deserves, built on its great founding principles to which so many of us are indebted, and to which George Bernard Shaw contributed as an Irishman, moving between our two islands, committed to justice and change, and recognising in the life and the work no borders to intellect or moral purpose. Thank you very much.
Thank you very much, President, for your speech. Um, we will now open up the uh, floor to questions. And if you wish to ask a question, please raise your hand and state your affiliation when I call upon you to speak. There should be roving microphones uh, which are available. I see three here. Um, could we start with this lady in the front? Then. Thank you, President. Um, um, my name is Ting Yan from China Business News. Um, as we know, you have just met um, the Chinese Vice President, Mr. Xi Jinping, yesterday, and who is believed to become the next President of China later this year. So what was your impression of him, and um, what kind of uh, changes do you expect him to bring to the China in terms of human rights and democracy, and also um, it's China's relationship with Europe in the coming decade? Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm going to take, um, and the President's going to take a number of questions, and then we will revert to him. Could I have this gentleman here, please? Hello, good evening. Um, um, I'm a former student of uh, EU policy at Birkbeck University. And uh, I wanted to ask you a question regarding the uh, coming uh, European Treaty. Um, it came uh, in front of the uh, French uh, Assembly tonight. Oh, it's coming. It's being voted tonight. Uh, first draft of this uh, European Treaty is being discussed tonight in the uh, French Assembly. And from your speech, I've heard that um, you had some uh, questions uh, regarding uh, the economical powers in front of the uh, parliament and the political power. My question is, as a president of Ireland, will you call against this treaty? And if not, uh, what is going to be your position? Thank you. Finally, this gentleman at the back. Thank you very much. Uh, Martin Collins from the uh, parliamentary group on the uh, Irish and Britain president. It was a, a, a breathtaking speech for which we thank you uh, all very much. At one time you said uh, that there, with you as president it would build a whole new relationship with our diaspora to replace the earlier concept of emigrants' remittances with a new model of support which contributes directly to the welfare of the Irish abroad but also to the social, economic and cultural development of Ireland itself that is built on solidarity and a shared sense of our Irishness. Mr. President, the Irish diaspora is a great source of strength for the Irish economy, but surely it is also a great source of, of strength for the Irish renewal of which you speak. Thank you very much. President, would you like to answer those three questions? And then is, I'll is, take it, is it all right if I answer from here? Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, thank you. Because I, I like to be able to see the people uh, from whom the questions came. And uh, if I sit here, I'm obscured slightly. Uh, uh, three questions. Uh, first of all, uh, about the visit of. Uh, Vice President Jing, which was deeply appreciated in Ireland, and a very successful visit, I think. Uh, I obviously have to respect the courtesies of his own dis meeting with myself and the, the discussion that, uh, that took place. Uh, I would say uh, that in the specific area you mentioned of human rights, which one could expect to be raised, Vice President Jing mentioned the 
achievement in relation to feeding such a large population as had been achieved. He mentioned the beyond security of food, security of clothing. He mentioned changes that were taking place. Perhaps the most interesting uh, side of the human rights discourse was his acceptance of a dialogue on human rights. Uh, I, as well as that, I think he accepted the indivisibility of social, economic and cultural rights from civil and political rights. And I think as well it was interesting in relation to the general human rights discourse as to whether one is speaking about collective or individual rights. So these issues did indeed come up. But what also came up, I think, and it, this was very positive, uh, was the opportunities that existed for exchanges in the relation to education and culture, and also, obviously, Ireland as a food-producing nation, its uh, welcome, its opportunities, and so on, the opportunities that existed for investment. So uh, I think that it was a very interesting uh, meeting, and particularly insofar as both sides were conscious of Ireland taking up the presidency of the European Union in the first half of 2013. And I think that the response to it as well, very positively, has been is that the Irish Taoiseach is leading a trade delegation within a matter of weeks of the visit. So there are issues to be talked about there are matters to be resolved but there are very many greater and great opportunities to the second issue which is interesting in relation to the European Treaty bound as I am and happily so by the 1937 constitution Bonrock I cannot speak to you about policy but just to, so that you know because it is a question others may ask me um, what will happen let us say that the Attorney General decides uh, that the matter can be handled by legislation. This, the Attorney General has the government as her client. That's, she reports to government. And they prepare legislation. It is when the legislation has gone through both houses of the Oireachtas, that is the Dole and Shannon, it then comes to me under Article 26. And my consideration is then as to whether there is an issue of constitutional significance raised if there is, if I believe there is, I, I first of all don't. I summoned the Council of State, and I was very happy to appoint Sally Mulready to the Council of State. I have to say, from the Irish community in Britain, and they offer an opinion. The Council of State. I appoint seven, but it is as every former Attorney General, every former Taoiseach and every former uh, head Supreme Court, and so forth. So it's a very large body, maybe more than forty people, and they offer an opinion. When that is over, I thank them for their opinion, and then I go away and make my mind up as to whether to refer it to the Supreme Court or not. Should I refer it to the Supreme Court, this problem about Article 26 of the Constitution, it closes off the option of other citizens contesting it. But then again, I have to arrive at that balance. And I am not at that point. The legislation has not been introduced. But on the more general point, which you might have asked me if you're trying to attach it to what my lecture is staying here now, I, I can tell you where I am in that. I'm very much with Habermas, but I think that the issue, things are more fragile than they were when he wrote his last piece. Uh, I think that... It is very important for us to look at how the founding treaties 
of the European Union came into existence and what their purpose was. The concept of a shared Europe. A concept of a shared Europe involving its citizens and so forth in circumstances where we would never occur again is very different, as I've been pointing out, rather from an accommodation between currencies or an accommodation between currencies in common response to speculative forces and so forth. I suppose there are those who would say to me, as I was asked by one interviewer not so long ago, uh, isn't it all too late? Well, I don't have a Nietzschean view. I believe in the power of people who think and the power of people who offer their views and the public and to, in fact, arrive at alternatives in the connection between economy and society. I'm very strongly in favour. This is why I rooted it in the practice of the LSE in its best days in the concept of political economy. I believe in that. I also think it's interesting, and it's not what there are so many of you young scholars to know, and that is this, is that how could so many people take Lasky's lecture and his grammar of politics and then go back and do such terrible things by way of alternatives in their own countries? These are issues in a way that we have. We are entitled to decide how we live and what connection there should be between ethics, society. And I regard economic arrangements as instrumental to that. There will be many forms and pathways to different forms of development. As to the diaspora, you are entirely right. But I think it's very important in relation to the diaspora. Yes, 217 very prominent individuals in the United States have come forward to the forum chaired by President Clinton. Uh, in the United States and have said that they are anxious, indeed as you say, not only to make an attachment to Ireland, to become involved in an Ireland's recovery. There are many, many more. There are in the business end of things, I think 40,000 people who are Irish who are on boards of British companies. And you know Britain is the third biggest investor in Ireland and Ireland is the third biggest investor in Britain. There are many things like that. But the concept of the diaspora is also important in some other way. Diaspora is not only about the wealthy Irish abroad, it is about any of the Irish. You quote, I think people quoting my inaugural address are saying, is that if people who feel Irish, I am interested, as I said, in, a, in, a, in, in, in what my whole, the whole structure of my campaign was about a, a, a participatory act of citizenship in a creative society, producing an Irishness of which we might be proud. I, I have a very very strange thing about Ireland and immigration. Uh, I was a sociologist in my other life, but if you looked at, for example, comparing, take the short story of Limo Flaherty, the letter, and you look at why this, the father opens the letter from his son in America, and he doesn't read what his son is saying, but he takes the money out, and he says there's the price of a horse in that. And then you might ask and say, is the fact that we have more letters in Ireland from the Irish in America than we have from the Irish in Australia, that the Irish in Australia weren't sending home money? It's complex. It's very important that we never forget that we work to keep the people within our consciousness as the extended Irish family. And that has, yes, there will be those who will be of very practical and necessary assistance to us in recovery, but there will be many, many more that we should think of all the time. And anyway, we should then, after that, in many cases, look forward to their, not only always been with us in our thoughts, but their physically and practically returning. Uh, finally, a gentleman in the back row. I think we only have, all right, two more, two more questions, and that's it. This gentleman and then the lady in front. Thank you, Mr. President, for an inspirational speech. 
Um, Kevin Duffy, hailing originally from Ireland. Um, you mentioned our responsibility for preservation of the planet. I'd like to know your view, and I'm not meaning to steer into party political areas here, about fracking. My family come from Leitrim, and I'm terribly concerned at the amount of fracking that's planned for Ireland, and of course this will be an irreversible damage to the environment. Um, and I'd be very pleased to hear your view. Now this, this lady here, yes, we take this and one more if there's Hi, another question. Hi, Mr. President. Um, I'm very, very proud to have you as my president. I'm an Irish citizen, but I didn't vote for you. And um, I didn't vote for you because I can't. Yeah. Because when I left Ireland, I effectively lost my vote. So when you talk about participatory citizenship and a democratic crisis between citizens where they moved to, I'm still in Europe. It, and of course the, um, the role of the diaspora in uh, Irish renewal, it strikes me as odd that I'm disenfranchised. And I wonder, as my president, what you will be able to do as a voice for every single person who has had to emigrate um, to allow them to have their voice back in their home country. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. Well, there's a very good article by Revel in the Irish Times on fracking the case for and against. There's no doubt whatsoever that there should be environmental impact studies done and the issues of concern of a scientific kind resolved before any permissions are granted. And I'm sure but it's a matter for the government to decide that. You know that as well. But I, I, I think there are... Uh, look, we should be morally and intellectually past the point at which we're having to set up jobs and environmental responsibility in tension with each other. That discourse, we should be farther on than that, and I agree with you. On the second question, on the votes for immigrants, you, 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 you're quite right. Let me, let me set, be very practical about it. Uh, I can't, obviously, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I cannot deal with government policy, but I can say where I think there's a very practical initiative. I think that when the con Convention on the Constitution gets going, uh, it is obviously one of the issues to which submissions should be made. It's my own intention to, it's my intention as one of the independent pillars of the Oireachtas to have an, a view on the Convention, to be participative, but we have to work out the forms of that participation yet. But I certainly think, I mean I've given uh, uh, already, I could give you a list of things that that Convention should look at in the Constitution, the balance between the Article 26 needs amendment and others. There are many, many others. There are definitions of the state. But certainly the question of the, the voting rights of immigrants should be, uh, uh, should be dealt with. Uh, and that. But may I suggest this to you, that no matter where I was living myself, I, 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 I went to the United States after studying in Ireland and I participated in some debates there. And then when I came back at another time, I was in Manchester, and half my immediate family were living in England, and their children, and they're married, and I have nephews and nieces here, and so forth. You participate in the, these issues that I raised in my paper are not confined by national boundaries. I see them as moral, intellectual issues of scholarship. There are issues that I was deliberately posing, 
in universities. Like, for example, I could have thought this, I thought there were options for my paper this evening. One would be to take that debate that's going on in the London Review of Books or in the New York Review of Books on what should be happening between the universities and what changes are taking place now and the pressure it is putting on. I decided to leave that aside and address the more general issue because I am a public person. And the point about it is, uh, in many ways, what is the importance of Ibsen and Shaw and Wilde and all of those other as many cases? They write out of the agony and the joy of their times. We live where we are, and you must seize the opportunity to make the case for democracy, making economics accountable, not in any abstract sense at all. But the issue that is a matter for debate among yourselves is that as the debate has gone so far, there are those who say there is so much legitimacy lost, there's so much credit lost in different representative institutions that you should start all over again. That is the communitarian argument, as I understand it. And there are very distinguished people who support it. But I'm suggesting that to walk away from the state where it has taken us so long to find democratic representation would be a mistake. I equally think in relation to the civil society options. I think it should interact in its discourse with the discourse about the state and try and link these two together so as to achieve practical, practical results in the short term. So I do hope you get the vote, but at the same time, I say to you, while you're waiting, I think that we should uh, agitate to be intellectually and practically free in your scholarship. Thank you. Thank you, President, for the opportunity which you've given us this evening to listen to your views uh, and to explain yourself so cogently uh, to the audience. And we're most grateful to you for joining us and uh, taking the time from your busy schedule to speak to us. And there, are, there is a traditional event at this stage which, with which I would like to conclude the evening, which is to present to you the certificate of the London School of Economics and to thank you again for being with us.